All right, welcome back to another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we get to reintroduce you to the legendary, the one, the only, the phenomenal writer, Mr. Jonathan Brazy. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Outstanding. My voice is getting a little hoarse. This is the fourth interview today, but you know you do what you got to do for the for the cause. So, uh, can you introduce yourself for the listeners who might not have heard your previous couple episodes? Um, sure. My name is Jonathan Brazy. I'm a uh, retired Marine Infantry Colonel. Did 34 years in the service. Now I'm a full time writer. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs with my wife and uh, twin two year olds. Uh, I've got about. I think, it's a, I think I've just about hit 80 titles in publication, of which over 60 are, are full-length novels. Um, that's that's about it. All right. And so the other part of this uh, introduction is how we first met them. So I actually met Jonathan at the 20 Books to 50K convention, in, which is in Vegas, in 2018. Uh, and as I met everybody there, there was a bar involved, and we were leaning against it talking while we were waiting for something. There was a lot of waiting at that conventions. Uh, <laughs> and so we struck up a chord and I happened to notice his Marine Corps hat because he wears that everywhere. It's like he's proud of it or something. And, so yeah, we talking and, and the rest is history. All right. So we get to ask you just in case they haven't listened to the previous episodes, but we won't belabor the point, but Star Wars, Star Trek or Firefly? Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm probably going to piss off a lot of people because I'm not particularly religious, I guess. Um, I was amazed by the first Star Wars movie. I, I skipped for the first and first and only time, I skipped out of the Naval Academy to watch it the uh, second day that it was showing. Uh, and uh, I was just totally gobsmacked. But then again, you know, I, as a kid, that was when Star Trek first started and it was so totally different. So I have equal. Equal love for both of them, but it probably didn't follow through in in either uh, in either the universes um, as it progressed further and further. Okay, so what about Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Potterverse? Okay, now here, not the Potteryverse, but although I did watch them, um, both Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, I love. Okay. Game of Thrones, I wanted at some point in time, if he ever finishes it, I'd like to go to it. But I, I just know myself well enough that if if I get to the hanging ending with no, no completion, that would bug me. And it's sat so long unfinished that I'm not convinced we'll get an ending. Uh, so. Yeah, I actually talked to Martin uh, in the green room in Helsinki. And a couple of people, we weren't talking, we were talking a couple Game of Thrones things, but not like that. And a couple of people came in and were bugging him and he was just, not in his head and not saying anything. Um, but I did like the books. Um, and I love the Lord of the Ring books. And I, I thought the movies for Lord of the Rings were, were, did a really good job with them, to be honest. I enjoyed the movies as well. Um, so uh, because we like both the science fiction and the fantasy here, what was your first love? Was it the uh, Lord of the Rings that you read or was it the Star Wars that you watched? What was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Sci-fi. I, uh, my brother, I had just read, I was probably about, let me see, that came out. I must have been eight years old and I had just read uh, Don Juan. I mean, not Don Juan, Don Quixote. And, and it was my first adult book. My brother came over to me and said, well, if you like adult books, read this. And he handed me Andre Norton's uh, Starman's Son. Um, that okay. was before it was called Daybreak at 2250. It was just Starman's Son. And I read that, and I was completely and utterly, well, I already used the word gobsmacked once here, but I was gobsmacked. I, I could not believe that you could write a story about a situation that doesn't exist. And you could kind of make up your own rules and, and say what the background of the universe is. And from that moment on, I never read another Hardy Boys. Uh, I never read any of the other books. I was 
I was strictly science fiction for a while until I read um, Lord of the Rings. And, and that was my first fantasy. And then I, I really gravitated into um, uh, the, the Pern books, which are really science fiction, but they have the flavor of fantasy. Okay. So what is it about the, the wild world of speculative fiction that you enjoy? It's the fact that you could create a universe that doesn't exist. And you can make it wildly different and create your own rules, or you can make it pretty much today's what 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 we exist with today and use that as a reflection, a mirror, so to speak, of something that you want to observe uh, about the human condition. Um, I, I just love that. So what was your first memory of the genre? Was it reading uh, Andre Norton when you're yeah. talking about sci-fi and fantasy? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Did you ever play any of the, were there any like board games or games in, in general in the sci-fi or fantasy space when you were young? No, they didn't really exist. I'm an okay. old fart. I, I just don't know when they when they first started coming out. I, I seem to remember someone said Gamma World was the real first one, but I think that might just be an RPG, so. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it really didn't exist too much. And I've never been a big game player, um, you know, as a kid. You know, I, I played uh, Monopoly with my family, you know, and, and when Risk came out, I thought that was pretty cool. But I was never really, I, I was more active, more outside, a lot of sports, stuff like that. So I, I and, and, oh, and, you know, my, my, my parents play bridge all the time. And I was looking at them going, how are they enjoying this? <laughs> That's one game I've never learned to play. Um, so how did your love of speculative fiction transition into you telling stories in this wild world of imagination? Well, I always wondered if I could create uh, one of these uh, universes. And, and I would tell stories all the time. I wasn't writing them at first when I was in junior high and high school, well, grammar school for that matter. Uh, I wasn't writing them, but I would tell people stories Sometimes they were supposed to be true. I mean, you know, I wasn't telling you, I wasn't telling them this is fiction. I was, and there I was type stories. And I would like to see how far I could push it. <laughs> to see if they would still believe me. And I had some wild, wild stories. And I had people would come up to me. I had a people at, at, at reunions who would come up to me 30 years later and say, Oh man, when you told me this, I was so amazed. And I was like, oh, I, I told you what? <laughs> story. So I always I was always a storyteller in the in the you know the, the old-fashioned narrative around the campfire storyteller. Okay. So many authors let their own sort of real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Was it telling those uh, fun little tall tales to your friends, or I, I think it was. I think that's what created the the need in me to tell people my, to let people see my imagination. Okay. So the, uh, feedback, the feedback I get from all my friends was amazing, and of course, you know, I, I skipped a grade, so I was the youngest and probably the smallest guy all the way up till halfway into the Naval Academy. And, and to have everybody sitting there, uh, you know, just with bated breath, listening to me tell a story, and then, you know, clap me on the back and all this kind of stuff, you know, it was a big ego boost. I can see that. So speaking of the Naval Academy, so we've mentioned that you are retired from the Marine Corps as a Colonel. So we ask this of all of our authors who are also military veterans, but do you feel like your time in the Marine Corps affects the stories you tell? Absolutely. They're the basis of my of my storytelling, at least my military storytelling. So, do you ever draw on people that you knew in the military when you're absolutely, absolutely all the time? I have books, particularly in my military fiction books, where every single incident really happened. I mean, I've changed names and and adjusted it. My Werewolf of Marine, but my series, there is so much in there that was. True to life, other well, the fact that I've got a werewolf in it. 
Wait, spoiler alert, werewolves aren't real? Dang it. <laughs> so um, we've talked about how your time in the military affects the, sto the stories as you tell them, but does it affect the way you engage with stories as a reader or a viewer or you know, enjoyer of games? Do you think your time in the military affects it, you from that angle? I, yeah, I think so because I I when I read military books, they have to have the verisimilitude of being in the military. And yeah, it could be fantasy. It could be 10,000 years in the future. So, you know, you have to take that leap. But when things don't ring true, I it, it pulls me out of the story. And I even put books down. I mean, when you, when you read a book where uh, the PFC, the private in the Army or PFC in the Marine Corps, when he's telling a major what to do and the major saying, yes, sir, sorry, that book gets closed or I could turn off the Kindle and delete the story. Yeah, that would just never. Well, it might happen, but then there's going to be some wall to wall counseling that happens afterwards. <laughs> so uh, transitioning away from the writing side, let's look at the fan angle for a little bit. So have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet? I had a guy who. Uh, uh, who wrote a song? Wow! About one of my characters, and he recorded. He asked me, "Can he record it?" And I went, "You better believe it." So okay. I thought that was really cool. Did you ever get to share that around your social medias, or? You know something? I should ask him. I should. That's a no. I haven't. But yeah, that's a good idea. So here's what we're going to do, dear listener or viewer. As I'll, I'll see if he can do it. He'll share it in his newsletter. So all you got to do is go to his website, sign up for his newsletter. And when he finds the uh, the guy and gets it out there, you'll be able to hear it first. There you go. Yeah, but that was a, so, that was really cool. When he, he asked me if, if it's okay if he records it. And yeah, that, that's that's not something you would think of. Like I can see art or, or the costuming, but it never would have thought about music as the uh, – But I am waiting. I go to DragonCon every year. I am – Every time I see anybody that's that looks anywhere close to one of my characters, I run up and grab him by the throat. You know, <laughs> say, "Are you with Lysander?" <laughs> They've always said no and looked at me with wide eyes and tried to break away. I don't understand that. <laughs> so, has anyone asked for your autograph in public away from like a convention or a Dragon Con? Not away from a convention. Um, oh no, 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 no! I did. I, I. I Completely forgot about that. I signed a guy's shirt at a paintball, Amer you know, national championship paintball tournament. Nice. So I, I signed a shirt there. He saw, I was wearing a, a T-shirt that said recruit, which was, you know, what the, uh, what the back cover of the book on it. And he had read it. And I, I signed his shirt that he was wearing in the uh, paintball stuff. Nice. So um, have you ever spotted anybody out in the wilds uh, reading your books? No, I would die if I did. That's Problem one I is, feel like. You know, I, I sell far more ebooks than than paperbacks or hardbacks. Uh, so yeah. I always wonder as I'm in an airport or something like that, you know, there's someone reading a Kindle. Is it possible? But I have met people who have read my books, particularly on airplanes. That's cool. I, I think the people that can say yes to, I've seen people reading my books in public outside of just a convention where they just bought it would have to be the people that came up the, the older traditional route because, you know, they said they tend to push the hard copies more. Yeah, I, I would say so. So, but one of these days I'm, we're all going to get that, that final prize of seeing somebody read our book like that. Well, it's the same thing. You know, when I'm looking for cosplay, I grab people's Kindles out of their hands you know, <laughs> start scrolling through them. Like, no, you're reading the wrong stuff. They have a 10-penny nail, so I'm ready to sign the screen the first time that <laughs> happened. <laughs> All right. So have you had any fun or uh, funny or weird interactions with fans since you started writing? Uh, yeah, I've had several. Um, my my book, Recruit, which was the first my first military sci-fi um, it's set in a society that's a little bit repressive, at least initially, in, in the first volume. And because of that, I had one, one of the reviewers, a Vine reviewer on Amazon, 
said something to the effect that, you know, all the women are, are pro prostitutes, which wasn't true, but all the women are prostitutes and, and I must not be able to, uh, I must have never had a date, that type of thing. And at a con, uh, my first world con, I was manning a, a booth for the science fiction fantasy writers of America. And uh, I, they said, you, you bring out some of your books and put it on the table. So I put my books on the table and this, this young lady was walking by, you know how they walk by at cons or kind of don't want to catch your eye and they're looking down and she saw the book, looked up, saw me, looked at my name tag, looked down at the book, looked up, looked at my name tag, looked down at the book, looked up one more time and said, that guy was all wrong. It doesn't treat women poorly at all. And I was just, <laughs> oh, my gosh, you know. So I asked her, I said, well, have you read book two? She goes, no. I grabbed my book two, which was on the table, and I immediately gave it to her. Just read it. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's a good way to get a free book. So this <laughs> yeah, is the part if it, if it feels like we're rushing these early questions, dear listener, it's because we literally just interviewed him last month and you're going to be hearing one from the archives from him. You'll understand why at the end. So we're, we're just trying to get to the good stuff and talk about the book we invited him here to discuss. So can you give the, the listeners and viewers the uh, highlights reel from, from everything you've written? Well, I started writing military fiction and I've got uh, two series that uh, one takes place in Iraq. And and one takes place well, at an embassy and at the in the South China Sea and stuff like that. And then I started. It was a 2014. I wrote my first military science fiction, and that has been my most successful series to date. Although the current series looks like it can beat it, um, and that's the uh, United Federation Marine Corps, and that has eight books in the first series, five in the second of three in the third and I think three in the fourth. So I, I you know, I got a quite a few and uh, quite a few short stories and novelettes. One of my Nebula award uh, finalists was in that series. And so then, and then I also have, uh, as I mentioned, the werewolf of Marines is one of my favorite. I've got some uh, historical fiction, one on the first Barbary war, which I was, the most enjoyable book for me to write. Um, I've written books with, I had some co-written books with like Michael Anderley, Richard Fox. And right now uh, I've got a series that I'm doing with Jeff Cheney. In fact, one of them, book three just went live today. Yeah, your your book with Richard Fox was the one where you had the movie stars acting out the parts, correct? Yeah, I had Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and The Mandalorian. Uh, he was the one who uh, narrated my chapters. So was that something you arranged or they just surprised you and you're like, heck yeah, I'm going with it? Uh, Podium. I have uh, some books that are with Podium and some aren't. And Podium, they did they did it. They arranged it. Nice. So um, all of those books sound fascinating. But here today we're going to talk about the Legacy Marines, the first book in the United Marine Federation series Lysander Twins, which I think follows the recruit series, correct? It's like a follow-on. Yes. So where did you get the premise for this for this follow-on um series? What was the the inspiration? Well, the initial United Federation Marine Corps series was done. Um I had the arc planned. I did add two more books while I was writing it because people kept demanding more. Uh and, and it was doing very, very well. So that went from uh, six books to eight books. But I didn't think this universe had been explored. Now that the, the government is not so repressive and it's opened up a lot of, a lot of new ideas. And then I started thinking about it. So I've known several people who were kids of generals and admirals. And I've watched them either succeed or fail tremendously. Um, and I started thinking about what, what I've already introduced the kids. How would they react trying to follow in their father's footsteps? And so that just brought up five more books um, telling their story. And then there's a, a novel, uh, 
the novel. Yeah, it's a novelette, I guess it is. That that kind of ties the whole series together at the end. Okay. Um, so before we dive in to the specific series, uh, we're going to take a moment where I'm going to share the cover. Um, can you tell the viewers and or listeners how you came up with this cover? Um, you see a lot with imposed and power armor, but not sort of what you've done here. So, so how'd you come up with it? Um, I, well, like, like I said, I, you know, I have all my other books of action, power armor, all that kind of stuff, aliens. Um, I needed a cover. My artist who is, was a, uh, uh, pretty well-known artist has won quite a few awards. Um, I didn't give her very much time. And I just thought, since this is a story of a brother and sister who are twins, and they go about it different ways in the series, I thought this kind of reflected on what the what the what the series was about. I know it's not very uh, typical for a space marine book. Um, it was just the the idea that I came with, and this is what she came up with. Um, she didn't have much time to do it. She's a painter. Um, but this is what she came up with. And I thought it at least gave the, the, I thought it was a good picture of the concept of what the series was about. Well, I like it. It's different. It stands out just enough and there's enough going on in the background. Um, so it works for me. It got, it would get me to buy the book if I hadn't already owned it. So, all right. So, what would you say the 30-second elevator pitch for this novel in the series would be? The series, the 30-second elevator pitch, the series is about the children, the twin children of one of the most famous and infamous at the same time people in the history of the United Federation Marine Corps. And how they follow in their followers' footsteps is totally different from each other and they have different outcomes on on as they go through their Marine Corps careers. Totally different paths. Okay. Um, and what do you think makes this series special in the in the wide world of military fiction? I have never read anything that had the same sort of both com uh, competition and love between two characters, the two MCs. And we, we have people who are, we have a lot of books where people are competitors. You know, there may be two main characters, but they're definitely in competition. But we, and we have a lot of where people, it's the brotherhood and, and, and love. It's even, even families and stuff like that. But here there's definitely a competition between the two, but there's also that deep dying love that, and the bond of who they are. And, and in this case, one of them goes the officer route. And one doesn't, but they both have ups and downs, but they all have fairly satisfying careers. I'll guess I'll, I'll put it at that, like that. Okay. So what uh, tropes uh, do you feel like Legacy Marine hits the best? Loyalty, uh, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Uh, the fact that you are you do things for the people serving alongside of you. And in military fiction, uh, military science fiction and space Marines, I think that's the trope that has to be there. It's like um, romance with the happily ever after. Uh, you could do a whole lot of things in romance, but if you don't have the happily ever after, people are gonna get really <laughs> upset at you. I think when you're doing space Marines, basically, well, number one, the Marines are basically the good guys. Um, and number two, you have to have that brotherhood and willing to sacrifice for your fellow Marines. So you mentioned that the, one of the tropes for, for space Marines is that the space Marines have to be the good guys. So do you think they can tolerate Marines as the bad guys if both sides have Marines? Or do you have to call them something else to keep people happy? I would call them something else. Uh, I, I made the mistake when I was writing. Well, I don't want to say it's a mistake, but I, I heard about it. I wrote a side novel to the first recruit and, and, and the first United Federation Marine Corps series. And it concerned a character who was going to show up on the last book. 
And she is actually on a planet where the Marines are sent to quell uh, unrest. So in a way, the Marines are the bad guys. Now, they weren't written as bad guys. They were actually, actually, they saved her. Um, but they were the opponents. And yet, I had reviews that said, I don't read these to find to read about the Marines being the bad guys. Interesting. So that was a lesson I learned early on. Um, and then the Marines really weren't bad. They weren't evil, that's for sure. And this character became very vital to the last book in that series. So I had to introduce her early enough for it. But I didn't, it, since it wasn't really about Rick Lysander, who's the MC for that series, although he's, he's there, um, I decided to make it a book out of the, out of the series numbers. Okay. So you mentioned that this was military sci-fi as the genre, but do you think it fits into any other subgenres of uh, science fiction? Oh, uh, well, you know, if you look at Amazon, it's in there for aliens because there are aliens, uh, colonization, empire, uh, Space opera? No, not so much space opera, I don't think. There's some of the aspects for space opera, but there's a lot more realism uh, in these books that you will you often find in Space Marines than are, than are what they're in, in. I mean, you know, people die. That's quite common in Space Marines. Unless it's a red shirt in space opera, that usually doesn't happen as much. Okay. So now let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us about the two main characters? Well, uh, the two characters have always felt, you know, they're, they're and this is kind of a trope too. They have, they love their father, but felt abandoned by him because of his being deployed, um, being taken up in, in things that are just much greater than a normal person's uh, career. And they always wanted to make him proud. And the son, Noah, he always felt that he was a disappointment. The daughter, Esther, she was the driven one. And she's the one that succeeded in everything. She could have gone pro in a type of sport. And then when, uh, when he disappears from the scene and they decide to enlist because she was always going to enlist, um, at the last second, even though his father's no longer around, he decides to enlist too to prove almost as if he could earn his father's um, admiration and respect, which isn't really true, but he, this is how he feels. And so they go through and it finds out that particularly in the first book, she is the one that's going to succeed no matter what. And sometimes she could, uh, I don't want to say stab anybody in the back, but she doesn't mind stepping on a few fingers climbing up that ladder where he is much more person oriented, um, more, uh, he, he won't step on anybody's fingers. He's going to give them a boost going up the ladder. And so this book covers the first part of their, and, and this book, they're, they're both, they're both in there as, as POVs. The second book is about Esther. The third book is about Noah. The fourth book is about Esther. And then the fifth book has them back together and they're serving together. And it sort of ties all that stuff in of what it means to be both Marines and brother and sister. Okay. So now would you say then that based on she gets the extra book, that they're both main characters, but she's the slightly more important main character? No, no, not really at all. It's just that... Um, the the other it was going to be a four book series but then i realized i had a story to tell and it fit esther uh it fit esther more okay so part of it is because this one needed an officer uh most of my books are actually of, of enlisted people but the fourth book needed an officer and and esther is an officer okay were there any secondary characters that were especially especially memorable for you I like a lot of my secondary characters. Um, one of the secondary characters in here, who's sort of like a, um, a Yoda figure, was one of the main secondary characters in the first uh, in the first series. 
And then another, in fact, there's two of them, I guess. One is a, a lieutenant general and one's a sergeant major. We become very important in these. Um, one of them is a cook who is actually patterned after um, one of my fans who was a British army cook um, who unfortunately passed away um, after th about three years after I met him. And uh, as it gets a little emotional, um, I didn't realize that he had been bedridden and every, you know, he would read all my books and every day to see if there was an email from me, you know, he'd wake up, look on the computer. And when he died, his, the six, there were six pages in the eulogy that the vicar gave. Um, the whole last page was about me. And uh, that's the, <laughs> I get emotional on that. That, that. That's a segue. I mean, that goes off to another area. But the character that he, um, the, the character that he created with me was a pretty big character also. He was Noah's, um, became almost a father figure for Noah because his real father was gone all the time. All right. So, wow, that's that's heavy to follow. But were there any bad guys that they have to face? Um, or was the universe itself the bad guy? Without the universe itself was the bad guys. There's always bad guys in there. Um, characters who show up again or characters who are jerks. Um, but generally, the bad guys are, well, even my, my aliens in these books are, they were bad guys. But it turns out they're not so bad. They were just enemies, um, you know, the, the noble enemy, I guess. Um, but the the main the, it's just the universe is the bad guys, the main ones. Okay. So since we've talked about characters briefly, and you tend to do horrible things to yours, uh, <laughs> if they if they met you in a back alley, you, you think you got a chance against the twins, or you're gonna have to hire a bodyguard? No, the twins. It depends on when I find the twins. Uh, Esther might might shiv me uh, <laughs> until we get to the end, and the until we get to Coda, which was the name of the novelette at the end. Um, I think I'd be okay with her then. No one, no problem. Nah, yeah. If I met when when Esther was a captain, yeah, I don't think I'd want to meet her in an alley, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, finally, in, in many universes, um, the the world that the story is told in is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So, can you tell us a little bit about the world where this story is is set? Well, the, the world is set in a period when there is massive expansion. The uh, as I said, the United Federation Marine, the United Federation. Uh, had been a fairly repressive society. There had been a lot of wars, and they basically used that to gain control. Um, women were second-class citizens in most ways, and that character grew up thinking that was normal, and over the case of the eight books, he realizes that's really stupid because every woman he knows is actually more capable than he is. So by the time we get to Legacy Marines, because of the actions in the first series, um, it's a far more altruistic and, and uh, uh, it's a far more equal society. But there are still lots of bad guys. There's, a, uh, there's um, people who trumpet a religion, but in reality, they're ba basically crooks. Um, so... The, the big war that had been happening that was a bit uh, 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 that's a threat to humanity that's over and everybody thinks okay peace has come but not really even in war there are people who will have either immoral or criminal activities to better themselves ahead and this is the society now that they're facing it you know supposedly the war is over we're at peace but not really Okay, so you wrote the United Federation Marine Corps as the main military unit. So how does that compare and contrast with the U.S. Marine Corps you served in? 
What I did, I, I don't like, um, I read a lot of books that are exactly the U.S. Army and exactly the U.S. Marine Corps. I didn't want to have that because in the, in the future, who's to say that the United States is the one that takes over everything? So what I did was I, I made a big effort on when the Federation was formed, I, there were 48 extant Marine Corps or Naval Infantries. Each one became a sponsor of a battalion. So, you know, the very first Marine Corps that exists, uh, that still existed, was the Portuguese Marine Corps. You know, then the Dutch Marines and the British Royal Marines. So I, I put a lot of all the tradition and history of these other international, uh, these other uh, nations' Marine Corps, and 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 I and each battalion would celebrate uh, like the Portuguese Marines, and they'd have a big celebration like the birthday ball. And since this is far in the future, I also had uh, Marine Marine Corps that haven't been that haven't existed yet. Uh, it, that will be part of this tradition. And so I try to put it, I try to put traditions and stuff from most of the Marine Marine Corps and Naval Infantries and Army and stuff. Uh, the British Royal Marines make a heavy impact on my series. Um, but I want it to be more open and I want to put more cultures in there than just the US the USMC. Okay, that's a fair answer. Did you get any pushback when you wrote things that weren't true to the U.S. Marine Corps from readers? No, I haven't. I've never received that. Uh, I can't think of. I must have. No. I, I know I did when I did the, the Marines in the first series I wrote, and I had them say huzzah because I just wanted to be different. And it was like I spelled it different than the Brits say it now. And they're like, that's not what Marines say. And so my answer, this is when I was stupid enough to still answer people in the comment <laughs> section on book reviews. And I'm like, ah, but space Marines might. <laughs> and it's, it's I always don't think funny. I've ever had that. Um, it's always funny where people draw those lines. Like you're with well, me in Space uh, Dragons, but not with the Huzzah. Yeah. Marco Cluse wrote a book that had the officers had, I think I might get this backwards. Uh, the officers had Navy ranks. And the enlisted had Marine Corps ranks. I mean, had enlisted ranks. Uh, I said that wrong. The Marine Corps officers had Navy ranks like Lieutenant JG, Lieutenant Commander. The Marine Corps infantry, I mean, enlisted had private, sergeant, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he had people jumping on him in reviews and comments saying, you know, that's not how you do it. You know, it's, it's 1,200 years in the future. You know? Yeah. The, the rank gunnery sergeant didn't exist till 1958. So how could 1200 years in the future, who's to say what it's going to be? Yeah, I, I've seen um, Scott Bartlett did that with his uh, mech series as well, where he had like in Navy rank for the ground troops as well for his, for his ground soldiers. Now those were, I think more militia, but, but yeah, it was, it's definitely jarring when they make changes, but once you get past that, you realize it sort of works most of the time. Yeah. So create something a little bit different so you know you're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. So um, Legacy Marine is clearly part of a series. I know because it says so on Amazon. And you told us there are currently five books out in this series. But is their story done? Will we get more from this universe and these characters? Don't think so. Uh, short stories, novellas, novelettes. Um, people quite often ask me for another uh, I have a, the woman of the, of the United Federation Marine Corps that has a sniper named uh, Gracie Medicine Crow. And I regularly get people saying, I, we need another Gracie story. So as far as, as far as another series, um, you never know. I might come back to it, but I've got so many books in the series I'm doing now. I've either got five more books or, uh, or 11 more books to write. So in, since, my, in my Ghost Marine series, I've got one more book to write there. So you've written co-authored with other people in, in other universes. Do you think that that is going to potentially happen in this universe? You might bring someone on to write with you? I would definitely be open to that. I've got someone right now who's trying to do a, a game on it. 
Oh. And uh, uh, is, is that is that something you could talk more about yet, or is it still? Well, in the I have given him the okay, uh, but I have not seen anything yet. Okay. We just, well, you'll have to. We, we have to let us know. That, we settled that three days ago. Wow. So okay. So it's really new. You'll have to come back and tell us about it when that comes out. Yeah, I'm uh, curious to see how it. I'm curious to see it myself. Is it like a computer game, a board game, like an RPG? What is it? Do you know? RPG. Nice. So we all we know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent rules of science and technology. Um, so what sort of tech can we expect from these books? Um, I try to be as realistic as possible in my tech. Um, some things I hand wavy them. My faster than light travel, I give as much as someone might understand how a jet plane works. You know, I, I really don't go into it. But I try to keep my science uh, as accurate as I can. And I have friends. I have one of my friends is a physicist. And I often send him things. I had something called a, um, a tungsticle, which is a big giant column of tungsten that gets dropped from orbit. And I gave him the dimensions and everything. And I sent it to him. <laughs> he wrote me back and said, what, you're trying to break the planet in half? So I can make it a heck of a lot smaller. So the rods from God, basically. Yeah, same same kind of thing. Okay. And so I try to, I, I try to, I, I don't have, I, I do nothing in the Marvel universe type stuff where you could do a, you could do what pretty much whatever you want, or you have technology that could do everywhere you want. Uh, there are always limitations in my tech because uh, I, I, if you are a god. I think it takes away a lot of the tension. Okay. So um, did you use chemical propellants or so bullets and rail guns? Did you use lasers? What was that I kind of weapon? I used both. Uh, oh, there's okay. different reasons. You may have a, a, a ship may use a mason, mason beam to fight another ship. However, when you're, when you're down in the atmosphere, they dissipate and, and they the, – Energy weapons aren't as uh, aren't as accurate. I mean, not as accurate. They're not as uh, effective. Whereas chemical rail guns, mag guns, uh, they offer advantages in in some situations. So usually, uh, whether it's a laser, whether it's a mason beam, uh, whether it's rail gun, whether it's chemical, uh, I, I tend to use more uh, mag ring for my kinetic weapons, uh, but it really depends on the universe and really depends on the situation. There's uses for almost everything. Uh, there, there was a book by, I think it was Joe Haldeman, where they had a, a, a sphere over the base and the sphere would let people walk through, but it, was, it would stop energy weapons. So what they did is they put knives up on top, the knives made it way through and then fell down and stabbed people. So there's, there's uses for everything in a military. And, and you got to remember, too, if you're looking at an energy weapon of some sort, like a laser, what's a very good way to defeat a laser? Mirrors. So what are you going to do if, if their power armor is basically shiny mirrors? Can't do much with an energy weapon, but you can with a kinetic. Or plasma. Or plasma, yeah. So, all right. So of all the tech that you put into your universe, what would you like to have for your daily use? Fabricator for food. And I know that's not unique to me. Uh, just the concept of being able to program and create anything you want to eat at any given time based on 28 different carbon molecules. Nice. I would love that. Make the thing I really want to try, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was in recon, so I did a lot of parachuting and stuff like that. Um, I had something called it that they nicknamed an egg, where you basically you got in and a, a, a ship, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away, would basically fire you at your insert point on a planet. And then the pod would ablate away, slowing you down. And then you use a modern version of a foil to go to the ground. And 
every time I've written that or something similar, I've always wanted to do it myself. Yeah. So were they on the bounce? Because that sounds a lot like Starship Troopers. Yeah. So um, if you brought that uh, some of the tech home, what uh, what tech would you take and, and misuse for fun uh, purposes? That's a hard question. I'm just thinking a tank, a hover tank could clear some some traffic out of your way. Rush hour would never be a thing for you again. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's true. I don't I don't think I have a good answer for you. Okay. All right. Well, we we will circle back to that one at some other interview and you Yeah, can I'll think about it. it. I'll go back to all my Well, if I can pick Werewolf of Marines, um there's a lot in there. I would. I would love to be a werewolf. Okay. Well, there you go. That's that's his answer, people. Final answer. So you mentioned that your uh, your universe has aliens in it. So how did you go about creating them? Did you uh, let nature inspire you, or did you just completely design something from your imagination? Uh, both. I, I when I was in Thailand, uh, my, my TV was limited because they don't allow a lot of things to be shown there. So I watch a lot of Discovery Channel and and uh that type of stuff and there are so many weird things in nature that i adopted a lot of it so the thing that gets me about aliens is that not to dang not to ding on on, on star trek aliens but an alien in star trek is a person with ridges on his forehead um that is those aren't the aliens i want aliens are not going to be people and so I wanted aliens that were not people. Uh, I've been dinged a little bit about this because sometimes I have, I've had people say, well, wait a minute, what's motivating the aliens? Well, if they're really alien and they have completely different thought processes, I don't think you're going to know what motivates them. You have nothing to compare them to. And so a lot of my aliens are, are an enigma. Um, all you know is that they're trying to kill you and you have to fight them. Uh, the 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 secondary the second group of aliens in the first series were different. They were more human like. I actually they were uh, rather bird like in many ways. But they it's easier to understand their their concept of honor and being a warrior. But a lot of my aliens are and and the first aliens I just wanted to do this. A lot of aliens are like the bugs in Starship Troopers. You know, right. you know, scary looking. Um, these aliens look kind of like teddy bears, <laughs> like three-eyed teddy bears. And I just wanted to do that to make them not look like they were threatening, but in reality, they were. Okay. I think um, um, Jack Campbell did that with his um, The Lost Fleet series as well, with some yeah. of his aliens that were like that. Uh, maybe it's that whole anaphylactic. Yeah, I was going to say. Maybe it's the Annapolis thing. The water poisoned your mind or something. That's what it was. That's what it was. <laughs> it was going out into uh, Crab Town, uh, you know, and, and going to the restaurants and seeing everybody come by just gave you that really fuzzy feeling. <laughs> so uh, as this interview is winding down and wrapping up, was there anything about Legacy Marines uh, or the series um, that you wanted to tell us before we move on? The series is standalone. I think it would make I think it would be uh, a little bit more impactful, particularly Coda, which was the the final novelette, if you had read the first series. But this is a standalone series. You do not have to have read the first series. If if you have never read uh, any, all the Rick Lysander books and you wanted to start with Legacy, uh, I don't think that would really hurt. I, I think it would be fine. Okay, are they out in audiobook as well? Yes, they're all audiobooks. All right, so I'm gonna have to check those out. Um, I got the first series, but I don't have this one. Um, so the reason we had you on, and I hinted that we'd be talking about that uh, earlier in the interview, was that uh, this book is going to be included in a story bundle. The link for the story bundle will be in the show notes for military science fiction. So um, have you have you worked with story bundle a lot? Is that something you're very familiar with? Yes, I have. Uh, I've done. I've been in Kevin Anderson's, I might have been his first or second story bundle. I've done probably five or six story bundles. Um, it's a good way for someone who wants to 
wants to uh, see new authors and give them a shot. It's a really good way to get uh, quite a few books from different uh, different writers. And then you, you know, you're certainly getting a lot for your money's worth. And then the ones that you really like, well, now that opens up a whole backlist of books for you to read. Yeah, I, I, if you if you're interested in even half of the books in the uh, in the bundle, generally it's cheaper to buy the bundle than it is to buy them individually. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I thought uh, it was, I it was covered writers from from story bundles. I have two, um, and they're starting to become more of them as they become more widely known. I think. Well, it's a great way. It's a great way to introduce uh, writers and books to a broader readership, and it's a great way for readers to discover writers whose work you might like. And so, one of the things that Story Bundle has is unique to some of the bundling services is they let you pick what percentage goes to the author and which percentage goes to the charities that they associate with. And um, there is a minimum buy-in, but if you really want to support those authors because you like like them in there, you can pay what you will above the minimum as well. So it's, it's a very democratic process that, that supports charities. And I always, always think that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Do you happen, do you happen to know which one is affiliated with it this time? Cause I, I think the, the host gets to pick from the list, but I'm yes. not totally sure. Uh, this one is the last one I did was water for Africa. Um, this one is, I'd, I'd have to look it up again. Okay. Uh, I just wasn't sure if he had said, so this is all new to me. I bought a lot of them, but I've never been on the other end of it before. So, all right. And uh, can you tell listeners how they can find you? Um, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Well, my website is uh, jonathanbrazy.com and on Facebook, I'm, I think I'm also Jonathan Brazy, uh, Twitter, yeah, Jonathan Brazy. <laughs> he makes it really easy for you to stalk him. So, all right. And you can find us, dear listener, on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tacky and tack blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tacky and tack blades. On Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook group where we host the uh, shenanigans. We share all of the appropriate memory and uh, we share these episodes as well. Uh, which is Blasters and Blades podcast over on Facebook.com. You can support the show by um, a monthly subscription service via anchor.fm, Blasters, Tacky, and Tag Blades, or through buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Uh, if you use the blast or the Buy Me a Coffee, we do ask that you put uh, for the podcast in the comments where they give you so we can uh, make sure we keep our co-host properly lubricated, and I will be your daily dose of uh, sober driving to keep them in line. Uh, so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.